Um, last week, we spoke of some foundational truths for us to begin, uh, help us understand how to faithfully steward all that God has given us. So just, just to recap last week, what's like the main thing we covered? Does anyone remember like the main statement we covered from last week, the two truths? It's first one and the second one. That's right. We're stewards of what he's given us. Those are the two basic truths we covered last week. God created everything. We are to steward it well. We want that deeply embedded into our DNA. Today, however, uh, we want to begin looking at the hindrances to faithful stewardship. What gets in the way of us rightly stewarding all that God's made, all that he's given to us? And as we look at these, it's my hope that we'll be able to better combat these hindrances so that we faithfully steward all, again, that God's given to us. So as we begin looking at this question, why is it, why is it so difficult to faithfully steward what God has given to us in our society at large? And again, as we contemplate this question, I think there are three broad answers uh, that can help us really get to the heart of this problem for each and every one of us. These are not the only answers, of course, but again, just, I'm, I'm really broad brushing here as we try to get to the heart of this. First, of course, is the problem of the heart. The heart of the problem with faithful stewardship is the problem of the heart. If you take any biblical counseling courses, it's like one of the main things they hit on over and over and over and over again. The heart of the problem is the problem of our sinful hearts. At the core of our being, our hearts are the problem when it comes to stewarding well what God has given us. And so rather than set our hearts on God and make much of him with all that he's created for himself and our good, our hearts are prone to take what God has given us and to worship it instead or ourselves. So to put it simply, as many of the reformers did, we often have these idols of the heart. And an idol is anything that we love or worship more than God. It's something that we find our ultimate meaning and identity in outside of God. And these idols can be a whole host of different types of things. It can be good things. It can be bad things. It could be neutral things that God has made. We could pretty much make an idol out of anything and anyone for that matter. And this is a problem because in the words of John Calvin, our hearts are idol-making factories. And so rather than give thanks to the giver of the good gifts he's given us to steward, our hearts instead worship the gift, the created thing, rather than the giver, which is who is God himself. So this is where we want to begin in our struggle, in our fight against um, not faithfully stewarding what God has given us. As we look at scripture, we find that this problem is not unique to us. It goes all the way back to the people of Israel. And in Jeremiah 2, 11 through 13, we find that they have once again abandoned God as their God, as their creator, and they've abandoned him for useless idols. In response, God says this, Has a nation ever exchanged its gods, but they were not gods? And yet my people... My people have exchanged their glory, their God, for useless idols. Be appalled at this, heavens. Be shocked and utterly desolated. This is the Lord's declaration. For my people have committed a double evil. 
They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and dug cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that cannot hold water. In this passage, God is condemning Israel for their idolatry. And in their idolatry, he considers it a double evil. It's a double evil. One, they've abandoned the source of life, God himself, their God. And two, they've sought life in worthless things that cannot bring life. Broken cisterns. They've looked for life in the created thing rather than the creator himself. And so whenever we commit idolatry, we abandon our pursuit of finding life, meaning, and significance in our life-giving God, and we instead turn to the things of the world, the idols of the world that we see all over, for significance, meaning, and worth. So our hearts take the gifts of God, and we worship the gifts over and against worshiping God who gave us those gifts. So again, connecting this back to the problem to faithfully steward what God has given us, rather than use what we've been given for God's glory and the good of others around us, our hearts take and distort what he's given us for selfish use. So the problem, once more, I want to say this one more time, is not God's good gifts to us. That's not the problem. But it's our heart's distortion and wrongful use of what God's given us. So we want to start there. This distortion then takes the form of two extreme mindsets, I think, in, in all of us. We got like two extreme mindsets here that further hinder faithful stewardship of what God's given us. What are these? One extreme view is the belief that money and wealth are inherently evil. All right, this takes the form in a variety of ways. Uh, but many of them boil down to what we would call asceticism. From this point of view, it's wrong or it's likely wrong to make a lot of money or to accumulate wealth at all. To be wealthy and rich is evidence that one is greedy and therefore morally evil. You combine this with I, this idea and this thought with a few passages of scripture taken out of context, and uh, the mindset becomes even more strong. Passages like the well-known one found in 1 Timothy 6.10. I think we all know this passage, but it's the love of money is the root of all evil, right? All kinds of evil. And rather than focus on loving money as evil, uh, again, these types of people will just transpose that right over to money itself, right? Money's evil, accumulating wealth. Money's the root of all kinds of evil, so we should avoid it. We should watch out for it. We should have as minimum, as much as possible of money. We don't, we don't want too much of that. And some churches with this mindset, uh, <laughs> I mean, they, they kind of adopt this mindset, and they're like, well, our pastor should be like, the poorest people in our church, right? We should give them a barely livable wage because money, again, is the root of all kinds of evil. And we got to make sure they remain humble and dependent on God to provide. I mean, I, I grew up in some churches like that. Maybe you did too as well. And of course, I'm being facetious here, right? I'm not being serious. But as we understand Paul rightly, it's the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. It's the loving of that money which is the barrier to eternal life. So what I think Paul is saying here in 1 Timothy about loving money 
is more in line with what Jesus says in Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters, since he will either hate one and then love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So again, money is not the problem. It's loving and serving it over God that's the problem. And so going back to our first problem, again, right, money becomes a problem when our hearts idolize it, when we make it everything, when we begin to find our worth, our significance, and our meaning according to how much we make a year or how much we have or our accumulated net worth. When that becomes your meaning and purpose in life, it's wrong. So then, we need to refrain from this extreme view that money is inherently evil or wrong to have. It has more to do with how our hearts interact with money. That's the real issue at hand. Now I want to step back here for a moment and and just say that I am sympathetic and I'm very understanding of people who have like this revulsion to money or who view it very suspiciously um, because there are plenty of verses. There's plenty of warnings all across scripture um, about money and like how Christians have to be on guard about letting their hearts become attached to it. Like I get that. And more than this, I think many Christians who, who view making a lot of money as wrong are, are largely doing this in response, I think, to even like the prosperity gospel at hand, right? We've seen the devastations of that in America. It's like one of the main things here in our country. And so it's, it's a response against that, almost an overreaction. And so while the prosperity gospel preaches a message of health and wealth in accordance with how much you give and how much faith you have, the aesthetic overreacts in the opposite direction, seeing the dangers of this misplaced hope. And again, some of this reaction is good. Some of it's right. But we have to be careful again, not to, to just pendulum swing all the way over to the other side, right? Because while the prosperity gospel is evil and wrong, it doesn't mean we should swing to the opposite extreme of aestheticism, for this has its own share of problems as well. In fact, aestheticism was a major problem in Paul's day and age, right? And we find several places of scripture where he is correcting the church on this issue alone. Well, there are several different places we could go in our scriptures to, to see this. One place that Paul goes to to deal with this, we will go to, is 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. It's here that Paul writes, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. As Paul wrote these words to Timothy here, we realize that there were false teachers in Ephesus, and they forbade marriage, and the enjoyment of certain foods. They were teaching abstinence, right? These things are bad. They make you less holy. And so they taught that a person becomes more spiritual by doing what? 
by denying these things, abstaining from these material things. But Paul didn't just think this was a bad idea. He, he even connects it to the idea of being demonic itself. And so in correction to this false idea, Paul gives us three guidelines then that teach us, teach the aesthetic, how to respond rightly to the material things of earth, to money, to wealth. So what is it that we see here in this passage? Again, as we look at this passage, we notice that it begins with God creating all things good by his work. We have to understand that first. We know the beginning. We know Genesis. In the beginning, God created and it was good. And so the problem, again, doesn't stem from what God created, but our use and abuse of what God has given us. Thankfully, God's word shows us then not only that his things are good, but how not to abuse what he's given us. For example, Proverbs says, If you have found honey, eat only enough for you, lest you have your fill of it and vomit it. Proverbs 25, 16. And so here God's word teaches us that all things are good, and then he also gives us the right way to enjoy what he's given to us. Not by eating too much, not by indulging too much in wealth and money. And so we began with knowing the truth of material things and using them according to God's word. And by doing that, it allows us to enjoy what he's given us rightly. So we have to understand that God created all things good and must use it accordingly. But second, as he says in this passage, we should receive it with thanksgiving. Receive what he's given you with thanksgiving. Again, we recognize, even as we covered last week, extensively, God owns everything, right? He owns everything. And what we have is a gift from him. And so secondly, we should receive all things thankfully. We don't receive it with entitlement. And by giving thanksgiving, we point back to our giver. We give him the credit. So when we're thankful, we see our role not as an owner or an abuser, but a steward of all that God's given us. And then third, we should pray in our use of them. Through prayer, we acknowledge God's kindness to us in giving us material things and goods, and it expresses our dependence on him for them. So prayer not only helps us rightly enjoy all that he's provided for us, but it again helps us to use them appropriately in our day and age. Through prayer, we don't set our hearts and minds on the things, but the giver himself. So if asceticism is our bent, where we are tempted just to, you know, see money, wealth, material possessions as bad, we're called to this appropriate response then, which is to what? Believe that God's creation is good and to use it rightly. Be thankful for his good gifts and then again, pray in our use of them. That is, how can I maximize God's glory and others' goods when it comes to what he's given me? So again, I want to begin here by addressing this wrong view of, of thinking that money is inherently evil or wrong to have. We shouldn't go there. Because the goal isn't to put money to death, but it is to handle it wisely as stewards of God. Perhaps like a word image or animal maybe that might help you 
get this, is like seeing a lion, right? A lion is to be tamed and not one that we are to be consumed by. And maybe that's a good analogy for money. We want to tame our use of it and not to allow money to consume us whole. So again, we see its power. We see that it can be deadly. And God has given us the power through the Spirit to, be t- to tame it uh, rather than be consumed by money. So any, any questions on this first couple points? Problem of the heart and aestheticism. This first extreme view I don't want us to fall into. I see some laughing, so that's good. I don't know if that's good or bad, but yeah. We'll continue on then. So if aestheticism or viewing money as inherently evil is is one extreme, uh, we need to address the other extreme as well, right? And that other extreme is what we're going to call here this morning as materialism, right? It's like kind of a catch-all here. Now, unlike the appropriate enjoyment of the good gifts God gives us, I want to say that materialism is a overindulgence of God's good gifts to us. It's an overindulgence of money, of wealth, of material goods, of all that God's given us. As we all know, when you overindulge in something, that good thing, that neutral thing, quickly becomes bad. All right, let me just give you three different scenarios here. For instance, well, eating is good, right? Eating is good. It's necessary for life and health. But when you overeat, it turns into gluttony. It quickly becomes a bad thing. Drinking excessively turns into drunkenness, and an overgrown desire for money or things turns into greed, or again, what I want to call here as materialism. It's an overindulgence, an overgrown desire for things, for money, which is problematic. So again, when we're talking about materialism here, we're speaking of an overgrown desire for money and things over and against God. So in contrast then to aestheticism, right, which views money and things as more or less bad and evil, materialism views money and things not not just as an inherently good, but like it's everything to a person. Money and things are what life is all about, and he who dies with the most toys is the slogan for materialism. So materialism is money-centered, It's thing-centered rather than God-centered. And I think to one degree or another, we struggle with asceticism in certain areas of our life. But at the same time, I think we greatly struggle with materialism in our society at large. And I think that may even be a bigger problem than the former. Thankfully, the Bible is not ignorant to our struggles with loving money and things too much um, more than God. And because of this, the Bible gives us many, many stories about the dangers of letting wealth and money capture our hearts and take over our hearts rather than let God be our master and our Lord. Consider, for instance, these few stories of Scripture that that capture this. Going back to the Old Testament, we, we know the story of Achan, who stole things set apart for God in Joshua 7, verses 1 through 26. He thought he could get away with stealing these material goods that were supposed to be dedicated to destruction. And when he did this, it brought great devastation to the people of Israel 
as they were then defeated terribly in battle. And in response to this sin, he paid the price with his family's death. Again, we see an inordinate love of money as I think Gehazi, Elisha's servant, lies to Naaman in 2 Kings 5, 20 through 27. He lies for material goods and possessions, right? Elisha heals Naaman, and then Gehazi goes after him and says, you know, in an act of greed, you know, actually, we'll take some gifts. We'll take some money. And then God brings judgment on him with the leprosy he cured Naaman of. And so his love of things and money over and against what God desired for him brought judgment. And as we move over to the New Testament again, we see this repeated theme as we look at the story of the young, rich ruler. He loved his things, he loved his wealth more than Jesus. And because of this, he did not come to have eternal life. He trusted and loved what his wealth could do for him over and against what Jesus could do for him. And finally, though there are many, many more stories than just this, I think the one that we are most likely familiar with is the reality that Judas betrayed Jesus, the very Son of God, for 30 shekels of silver. And so through the many stories of Scripture, we recognize the dangers, right, of loving money and things over God, letting our hearts become a captive to wealth and material goods as our Savior. It will bring devastation, it will bring loss of life, and even the loss of one's own soul. And so it's no wonder that we struggle with this so much. The Bible is not ignorant to our struggles with materialism. But I think, again, it would be good for us to just contemplate these couple of questions here together as a group. Why is it that we struggle with materialism so much today? What is so appealing about money and things that we have people like Demas willing to abandon Paul over it and Judas willing to portray Jesus? So we're going to take a moment here, take a deep breath, and we're just going to talk um, amongst ourselves here as a group. What, why is it that we struggle so much with materialism? What is it that is promising to us that makes it so alluring and, and, and captivating? It solves your problems. What kind of problems does it solve? Whatever you're struggling with? What's that? Get a tool to make it easier. Yeah, money has power. It makes your problems go away. Yeah, it acts as your salvation in so many regards. Yeah, what else? Instant gratification. Boom. I can get what satisfies my fleshly desires here in this moment. And I mean, our culture is all about that. Advertisements, hey, you need this to be satisfied, to be happy. Money can give you that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Good. An illusion of control. If I have money, I have control over my life. Absolutely. Good. I feel like I deserve something. You feel like you deserve something. Yeah. Yeah. Right. The temptation to rely on money for the comfort rather than going to God for that comfort that we truly need. Yeah, absolutely. And these aren't necessarily bad, but it, it can be a false savior, right? I think that's what we're getting at here. 
Money, as we've already said, right, gives the ability to instantly gratify our desires, which our society is about. Money gives us a chance for power over others. Money commands respect and authority in our society. It can buy comfort, luxury, and entertainment. Money seems to ensure security and really peace. You won't go hungry, if, and you'll have shelter over your head. And even as Travis said, it solves our problems. And I think money, in short, often acts as a substitute source for salvation that we look to more than Jesus himself, right? It acts as a rival for what only Jesus can truly offer in the end. It's an illusion of salvation. So I don't think it's a mistake then that Jesus addresses wealth as a major barrier to eternal life, entering the kingdom of God. Because I think in many respects in our day and age, People are like, I'm good. I don't need, why do I need God? I have money. It's solving all of my problems. It's giving everything that you say Jesus can give me. So why do I need him? So these are some of the dangers then of materialism. We're, we're hitting it all over. We can trust in it more than Jesus himself. This brings us then to the next question, right? How do we know if we struggle with materialism? How do we know if we struggle with it, right? I think this is an important question for us to consider. We've, we've contemplated that this is a dangerous problem indeed. We don't want to gloss over it. So then how do we know if we're struggling with it? How do we guard against it? I think that there are several X-ray-like questions we can ask ourselves to get a better idea of our own struggle with materialism. And I just want to go through a few of them with you here this morning. First, to the next one. There we go. Does owning or desiring X, whatever it is, money uh, or, or a thing, whatever that might be, or, or promotion, distract or keep you from doing what God has called you to do? For example, working for a promotion at work is not a sin. In fact, it might be the best way to provide for one's own family or to be generous to others. But if I'm obsessing on how to get a promotion to the point that it's distracting me from loving my spouse or my children at home, or neighbor, or I'm sinning in some way to get ahead, then I'm, I'm idolizing that job. I'm making it more than I should. So this is one question. Is it, is it distracting you from doing what God has called you to do? Is it keeping you from obedience? So that's the first question we can ask. Second question, what do you delight in? Are you more excited about things than you are about God? Again, going back to our foundational lesson last week, all things are designed to point us to God and are meant to funnel our affections, our appreciation, and our worship towards Him. And so, of course, it's fine to get excited about, you know, a football game, basketball game, a delicious meal, new clothes. All, that, that's fine. But when things become a dead end for our affections rather than a conduit to give glory and honor and worth to God, we may have become idolatrous. They become ends in of themselves. So that's another question we can ask ourselves. Third, how do you react when something is taken away? When we're angry about something that we have that's just out of nowhere taken away from us, our hearts are often exposed, right? And our reaction can sometimes highlight an idol we've built our lives around. 
So this often happens when we've grown accustomed to having a material good or money for a long period of time and have become dependent on it wrongly, possibly. And so what would be the hardest thing that you would have parting with, like a material good or wealth? And then ask the question, why? Why is that the case? Another question we can ask ourselves is, how do you feel toward others who have more than you? Maybe this thought has crossed your mind. If I had what they had, I'd be okay. I'd be content. I'd be happy. Or on the, uh, the flip side, we may self-righteously look down on others and think, I'm glad I'm not like them wasting money on such and such. And rather than comparing ourselves to others, we must find our sufficiency in Christ rather than looking to others and what they have. Because doing that invites discontentment into our hearts. Um, even as Jesus said, he says, take care and be on guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in abundance of his possessions. That's Luke 12. So how do you feel toward others who have more than you? How do you react when you feel insecure? This is another question we can ask. Um, acquiring Material things can be a right response to fear, right? Uh, for example, if I'm like in a really high crime neighborhood, uh, maybe it's good that you invest in some bars over your windows so that your house doesn't get broken into. Uh, maybe even some security cameras, that would be a wise thing to do. But material things can also be false saviors as well. And we need to recognize that it's not just greed that drives materialism, fear is a big culprit in that problem as well, right? Uh, so for example, fear of others' opinions of you might drive you to materialistically acquire clothes or cars or furnishings that you might not otherwise buy. Uh, fear of the future might drive you into an overabundance of savings that you might not otherwise need. And so in response to this fear-based materialism, which we can all struggle with at times, we need to remember what Proverbs 18, 10, and 11 says. The name of the Lord, okay, the name of the Lord, not money or possessions, is a strong tower. And the righteous man runs into it and is safe. A rich man's wealth is his strong city, and like a high wall in his imagination. So while the Lord is a strong tower, the rich only imagine their wealth will keep them safe. And so we need to remember that in the whole grand scheme of things, it is our God that truly guards us and not our money. And so it frees us from this materialistic center. So we, again, don't put our hope and trust in this false savior. So these are just a few x-ray questions. Are there other questions or comments on these questions before we move forward? Maybe you have questions for yourself that you have found helpful. Something we got to keep working with, I know. All right, we'll keep going on then. So these are some questions then of, of you know, x-raying our hearts and seeing maybe I struggle here with this, maybe I don't. Um, but what happens when we are like, okay, I struggle with materialism? And at one point or another, we all will, right? if we're being honest with ourselves. How do we combat materialism then in our own lives, in our own hearts? Okay, so we have this problem. How do we fight against it? 
and have a disposition toward overcoming it even before it becomes a real issue. I want to give us just three or actually four practical steps we can take here in fighting materialism. First, you know this one all too well, but treasure the beauty and excellence of God first. If we're going to really stop coveting money and possessions, we need something greater and more desirable, right? Jesus reminds us that where our treasure is, there our hearts will be also. And we often think of this as a, as a warning about money, but it's also a truth about God. If we treasure him, our hearts will also follow to him. And as we treasure God, we will not wrongly treasure the gift itself. So we need to work then each and every day to treasure our God in every aspect of life. From the food that we drink, to the beauty and nature that you witness today, to the comforts of home with air conditioning and a cozy bed, let what you participate in not be an end of itself, but lead you closer to God who created them. Take every opportunity to give thanks to the giver of the good gifts. For his good gifts are a way for you to really experience and know him more as the giver of all good things. So as you work to treasure God in your own life, consider doing the following, right? If you're not doing this already, again, I'm going to encourage you over and over again, read your Bible, memorize it, meditate on it, and pray. Engage with God in a relational way. And just as you engage with your spouse or your friends by talking with them and getting to know what's on their mind, we do that as we look at God's word and know his mind from his word to us. And then we talk with them through praying. Read good books on who God is, such as Knowing God by J.I. Packer, or The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul, or The Pleasures of God by Piper, or The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. Read good books that have helped Christians across the board treasure God more rightly. And again, I know for some of you, reading is hard, okay? It's not, it's not everyone's gifting or desire. So third, then, I want to encourage you then, just listen to music that leads you to treasure the beauty and glory of God. Maybe substitute some of your secular music for music that uplifts your heart in worship to Jesus. Everyone has their own flavor and preference here as I've been learning across the board. It's been fun to get to know. But whatever it is for you, listen to music that helps you treasure God more rightly and deeply. So this is the first thing I want to encourage us to do in fighting materialism. Second, I want you to take the very, very practical step of budgeting your money, okay? Identify how you are actually using God's money on a regular basis. This is one of the main ways we can battle against materialism in our day and age, and it's by creating a budget. A budget is a way of helping us battle against excesses in our spending. So if you haven't already, Begin budgeting. Okay, 65% of Americans do not know where their money is going on a monthly basis. I'm shocked that it's not higher than that, to be honest with you, with the way our culture is. But don't be like that 65% of Americans, and instead, uh, track your spending. Track it by budgeting. And after tracking it for a while, look at your budget and see where it is that you're spending God's money. Often, the way we spend our money we'll review what our hearts value and treasure. We see what it is that we're actually prioritizing. So if you've never done this, or perhaps you've tried and it's just gotten way too difficult, 
Maybe try tracking your expenses through digital tools like mint.com. It's really easy these days and days to track your spending with digital technology. And a lot of these applications make it so easy that all you have to do is like log in with like your bank account information and your credit cards, and then the app will take care of the rest. It will track everything you spend. And it's scary at first if you've never done it, uh, because it gives you a reality check to actually what you value with your money, uh, with God's money, that is. So again, in order to battle materialism, I, I just encourage you taking this really practical step. I'm more than willing to help you. I mean, you could talk with my siblings. I've been on their case all the time about, hey, budget, budget, where are you, what are you guys doing? Where are you I can help you with this, and I can help you too as well. Um, but it's a very important step as stewards of God to know how it is we're using his money as well. So again, after tracking your expenses for a month, creating a budget, talk with a close friend, a spouse, a godly mentor about your spending habits. Take that next step. Don't just budget. Talk with a friend about it, right? Um, because they'll be real with you, right? Hopefully. They'll give you the truth like, I don't know, man. I, it seems like you're spending way too much this past month on such and such, right? Have a friend who's going to give you some real talk after this. And then afterwards, after looking over your spending or your saving habits, um, here's a few questions for you to consider. Like, are there any patterns of spending exorbitant amounts of money on yourself selfishly? Am I spending or even saving all of the money that I make myself without any regard for God? Are there any patterns of wasting money frivolously or thoughtlessly? Um, is there a continued pattern of spending more money than I make and enslaving myself to credit card debt or something like that? Is there any track record of giving it all to others or to God? Or is it, again, only being used on myself? And so, again, the way we, we kind of get a general sense of that is by having a budget and, and a spending uh, chart that shows us where our money is actually going. Okay. So it's often necessary to battle against materialism by budgeting and, and looking at the way we spend our money. And where the idols of the heart are revealed, again, we ask God to help us to, to turn from loving that thing too much back to him. So after taking the step of budgeting your money, I want to encourage you then to take the even harder step, okay, for, this is, for me, this is harder, of evaluating how you are using God's time as well. Uh, much like how budgeting our money helps curb excess um, in spending, so budgeting our time helps us to curb self-indulgence on material things. It, it just does. And yet so often the case is we have no idea at all how we are spending God's time that he's given to us. So much like budgeting our money, we should evaluate personally how our time is being spent if we're going to properly steward it and fight against the idol of materialism in our day and age. Again, I find this to be way more harder than the second one up there. Um, because as far as money goes, you kind of just set it, forget it, you can automate it. Uh, with time management, that's like something that's always in flux, and you don't always know how your time's being, because just things call for your attention all the time. But despite that difficulty, I think we need to venture into this difficult territory, and again, try to get a realistic gauge of how my time is actually being spent on the daily, on the weekly, and even on the monthly. Am I using too much of my time on materialistic things only, or am I using it on what God would have me to do? A really simple way for you to start this is just at the end of the day before you go to bed, just simply record 
what it is you did by like kind of an hour by hour basis on a calendar. Record, generally speaking, how you spent God's time from the moment you woke up to the moment you went to sleep. And again, estimate, right? Don't go for exact numbers, just estimate broadly. Because what you're looking for is just a general idea of how your time is being spent. That's, it's a hard task to do. Um, but again, the main goal is just to get a general sense of how am I actually using God's time on the daily, the weekly, and the monthly? What are my true values if a person could only see what I spend my money on? Again, are there glaring defects um, in the way I use my time? Or am I even using my time on a good thing, but it's actually leading me to neglect responsibilities in other areas of life? I have a lot more here, but we are going to wrap it up. Last but not least, I want to encourage you to give generously. As Paul exhorts Christians to do in 1 Timothy 6, 18 and 19, he says, instruct those who are rich to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and willing to share, storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of what is truly life. So Paul's command to the rich, to really us, is to do good works, be generous, be generous, and share. And so in our fight against materialism, then, we do it by giving, using God's money in the way he intended us to do. Um, as Hebrews 13, 16 says, and do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. So here's just a couple of suggestions. Hopefully they've proved helpful to you. Um, next week, we'll talk about Christian engagement in a capitalist economy. Um, I'm going to do my best just to basically just give you a Joshua's perspective on how to best, uh, you know, practical tips on how to best use what God's given you money-wise in our society at large. And you can totally disagree with me on this. It's not as, um, I'm not going to go to as many verses, but I'm going to give you a general advice wisdom session on how we can best maximize our money and um, our, our material possessions. So we'll look at that next week. And again, if you disagree with me on a lot of those things, that is a-okay. But we'll close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much again for your goodness and your grace to us. You have given us so much. So help us not to forget that. And by giving back, for you have given to us everything in Jesus Christ. So even now as we transition into worshiping you together collectively, um, as the body of Christ, would you work in our hearts to treasure Jesus above all. And may the things of earth be stewarded rightly as we come to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Thank you.